Yeah, we got some exciting stuff today. But we are obviously in pneumatology, and just like our study of Christology, talked about the person and work of Christ. Now we're talking about the person and work of the Holy Spirit. So as we're talking about his person, we are under a discussion of his nature. And what are the two big categories we talked about underneath his nature? Deity, right? And P word. Personality. And that's what we started last week. We talked about both of those last week. Uh, we went from there to there uh, last week together. And today we're going to go back here for a little bit since we had some questions that we talked about last week. I'm all out of notes. So I can make, okay, that's great if you can. Um, because we talked about, uh, Wendell brought up the question of how is omniscience different from pantheism? And someone brought up the dreaded panentheism. <laughs> so um, I wanted to look a little bit more at that today, just very briefly. Um, someone asked what panentheism is. I thought, oh, I can't remember. And I looked back, and of course, sometime in seminary, I wrote something on it. <laughs> I completely forgot about it. But that's what happens. You forget things that you actually write and study. Um, I was like, oh, yeah, that's right. And probably, I still doesn't make a whole lot of sense what it actually is. Um, so that's probably why it never, it never stuck with me. But uh, Dr. Martin likes to say, um, what is it? I can't remember exactly what it is, what it is word for word, which is bad because it defeats the purpose of the rule, I'm going to say. But uh, learn it, forget it, learn it, forget it, learn it, forget it, learn it, you've got it. And that's how it is with us. So I was like, you learn it four times before you really got it? <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's, that's the best way to do it. So if you want to learn it, just find a group of people to teach it to. <laughs> Whoever's willing. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> this book right here, I've used a lot. Um, I bought it when I was working at the Christian bookstore, I think. Um, a pocket dictionary of theological terms. There's a small series of books like this, one for apologetics, one for biblical studies, um, and then this one right here. I think it's the three of them. But it's really helpful. Um, really short, succinct definitions of theological terms. It's, it's all those words that you hear, like when you go to a Bible conference or you hear another Christian talking, you're like, what's that word? I don't want to say it. I don't know out loud because it would be embarrassing. <laughs> but then you can go home and look it up in this. I'll pass it around so you can see it. It's really small. You can just have it on your desk. But, yeah, Steve, did you look in more into? I didn't, but as I Yeah. Yeah, they're very similar. Um, but I, I put a couple definitions down. Yeah. 
Well, flip them around, and I think you just about got it. Okay. Yeah. But let's. Um, Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I've, I haven't heard it defined in terms of polytheism versus monotheism, but that makes sense. But really, basically, you have this. This is what. Right, I believe, or we'll say, we'll call it biblical theism, okay? Because um, you could have an unbiblical theism. But uh, this is essentially the Greek word theos is bound up in there, theism. So it's just a belief that there is a, the one true God. And then you can have pan, which what does pan mean? All. From. Can Bob see that? Pos, which means all in Greek, okay? And an inflected form of that is is pan, right? So there you go. And then you have pan theism. So I mean, that's a the, the, the easy definition of that is God is everything. And there's a definition there from our little book. It's Greek for everything is God. The belief that God and the universe are essentially identical. And I'm in the notes right now. Um, more specifically, pantheism is a designation for the understanding of the close connection between the world and the divine reality found in certain religions, including Hinduism. Uh, one variety of pantheism speaks of God as the soul of the universe, which is thought to be God's body. Pantheistic religions often suggest that our experience of being disconnected from each other and from the divine is merely an illusion. So, I've not studied pantheism in great detail, nor do I want to. <laughs> But it's essentially that first sentence helps us to get an idea of where they're going. That's what my brother, all the stuff that he's learning within like the AA organization. Really? But not necessarily the AA that teaches the other stuff or within mm -hmm. the group that he's a part of. That it's all like Eastern, well, Eastern Orthodox, like mysticism and mm -hmm. stuff like that. And that is a lot of the verbiage he uses is, well, God's, God's in all of us. And then. I've shown them what scripture says, but you have to become a child of God, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And those ideas, though the scripture itself is not divorced from from what they'll they'll say read the Bible, mm -hmm. but yet they'll hold to a view that can you know conflicted with that. Yeah. Now God's in everything, God's just love and goodness and things like that. Hmm. Has he thought about doing a different program like Celebrate I think Celebrate Recovery is going to be better. I don't know if it's perfect no, either, but... It's not necessarily... At least it has a Christian view. I went to Celebrate Recovery okay. for almost two years. When I first became saved, mm -hmm. um, Rick Warren is like the overseer of all things that are produced for Celebrate Recovery. Okay. So, I mean, it has a lot of um, easy believism yeah. and stuff like that. But it's at least it's better than a gospel presentation, okay. even though it's weak at yeah. best. Okay, gotcha. Praise God, you serve too. Yeah. But yeah. Thanks. But they definitely teach 
Okay, so, so the point is it's still around. Yeah. So the Holy Spirit, and we're in discussion of the Holy Spirit's omnipresence. The Holy Spirit is everywhere, but the distinction we're making is that he's not, he is not everything. He's everything in the sense of he's the source of life. Like if you say, you're my everything in a love song, that <laughs> doesn't mean that person is everything but the source. Uh, but uh, that's obviously in a love song, that's obviously uh, <laughs> misdirect. It's a, you know, overlooking key, key truth about who God actually is, turning your uh, lo- love into a God. But then you, you have pan, which is, means all. What does N mean? Yeah, so from the Greek preposition N, which means N. <laughs> See, Greek's not that hard, is it? Oh, okay. Continuing the Greek font, which is not good. <laughs> Panentheism, so every... Um, uh, and here's your definition there, meaning all is in God. This view equates the universe with God, like pantheism, but allows God to have a separate identity st- distinct from the universe, unlike pantheism. And pan-in-theism, everything that exists is contained within God, but God is separate from and greater than everything exists. So some parts of that definition might not sound too bad, but let's look a little further. God comes from the world, and the world comes from God. That's a problem, isn't it? It's a big problem. So look at this comparison chart from Norman Geisler. And we're just going through this quickly, just to answer some questions from last week. Because when you talk about God's attributes, and in this case the Holy Spirit's attribute of omnipresence, um, it's sometimes helpful to distinguish that from uh, other worldviews. So theism, God's the creator. Panentheism, God's the director. Theism, creation is ex nihilo, which means what? Out of nothing. And then in panentheism, creation is ex materia, which means? Out of something. Out of something, from material, from previously, from previous material. Um, God is sovereign over the world. Panentheism is God is working with the world. One, God's independent of the world. The, on the other hand, God is dependent on the world. And here's a huge one. In theism, biblical theism, God is unchanging, but in this in panentheism, God is changing. And this is where it gets uh, bound up with this uh, false theology called process theism, where God's in process, and God's mutable, and he's changing along with the universe. As he needs to change and as the universe changes, he'll go ahead and do that. So this is, this is a huge issue. But in theism, God's absolutely perfect. In panentheism, God is growing more perfect. Theism, God is monopolar. And in panentheism, God is bipolar. And then theism, God is actually infinite. Panentheism, God is finite. So just to show that this is clearly not a biblical teaching whatsoever. And he's not much of a God, is he, if, if that's your view of him? Why bother? And the fact is, they don't bother, really, because there's no, there's no moral guide in that case. In that case, you do follow your own heart, and you do what you want to do, and you live for yourself. Because well, how could a God like that be your judge? How could a God like that provide you with eternal life? He couldn't. But the God of the Bible can.
Okay, so again, we are just uh, reviewing from last week. Well, not so much reviewing, but adding to what we talked about last week. And we, uh, I wasn't really prepared last week to talk about the baptismal, the baptism issue with baptism in Jesus' name. It's something I've thought about a lot. One of my old co-workers was a oneness Pentecostal, and she always argued about it. So I thought about it at some point, uh, whenever, uh, probably seven years ago. But I still wasn't really satisfied with my own study of it. Still like to do more, but I looked a little bit more into this week. So I'd like to bring up some a couple more points. We'll talk about a couple points we mentioned last week, but we'll also a couple a couple new ones. But just to uh, show you where we are there, remember last week we talked about how the Bible equates the Holy Spirit on the same same level as the Father and the Son. We talked about that last week, showing just to, just to prove His deity. Again, we were talking about this last week. Um, but we said that the baptismal formula in Matthew 28, you know, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, we said that it shows that they're clearly three uh, in one and that they're, they're, they're co-equal, okay? And that they have uh, equal honor and, the, and deity. But the question is, and you see it in your notes, you see where we are in the notes, by the way, under the baptismal formula? Um, do, the question we're going to ask now is do later New Testament records of baptisms in Jesus' name downplay or deny the Trinity? That's our question. So do other testimonies of baptisms, you know, in the New Testament, particularly the book of Acts, and those baptisms are said to be in Jesus' name, are those downplaying or denying the Trinity? So I think for all of us in this room, we'd give an easy, no, it doesn't. But are there those who do appeal to those testimonies and say, yes, they're downplaying the Trinity or, or denying it? There you will come across people who will say that. And I've had, I've had it, like I said, a co-worker who believed that. That, I have not figured out. Yeah. They just say, they say that the Acts um, descriptions override it. Yeah. That's, that's essentially what I've heard them say. Beyond that, I'm not sure what they would say. But just to give you one example, you know, you have, you have Matthew 28, which is Jesus' instructions to the disciples right before he ascended to heaven. And you have the parallel account in Acts chapter 1, right? Where Jesus is also giving instruction to the disciples. So the, putting yourself in the time frame, it's not too long afterwards that Peter preached this sermon in Acts chapter 2, after he was given those instructions. Okay, so in Acts 2.38, Peter said, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So, did, did Peter forget what Jesus said? Or did he think, there's no Trinity, I'm just going to say Jesus' name. I'm not sure what Jesus was talking about, this Holy Spirit idea. I'm just going to say Jesus' name. That, it's at least irreverent for us to think that. And, and it's definitely not a biblical stance. So yes, oneness Pentecostalism, it would be the branch of Pentecostalism that teaches this. They insist, and the ones I've talked to, is they do insist that we should administer baptism only in the name of Jesus. Okay.
Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, that would be a key difference to make. So if he makes, if someone makes out a claim, then you have something to talk about because you could say, okay, let's look at evidence as to why that could be true or why it's false. And I think you could actually see from Scripture what the, the, the answers to that. So yeah, having that clear understanding would be a good thing up front if you were to talk about this with someone in the future. Um, okay. Uh, <laughs> okay. Well, let's let's work through. You might maybe maybe we'll get what you're thinking of. Um, and this is this. Okay. There's all kinds of blogs on the internet, so I'm not saying this is the most credible source, but this is at least a representative of oneness Pentecostalism. Um, and it's not completely in isolation because this is what they would teach. Okay. So again, I'm not saying this is the greatest source. This guy named William Arnold, I have no idea who he is. I just found an internet blog that voiced the opinion of, of one is Pentecostalism, okay? Um, but he said this, even if this is his emphasis, you know, those words, words in italics, those are, that's what he put. I didn't add that, okay? Um, even if God were a trinity, Jesus is the one who died for us, and he is the one who the Christians at Rome who were buried with. So even if God were a trinity, I mean, just that statement by itself, Ugh. It's like you hit, hitting you in the gut. Like, obviously, he does not believe God's a trinity, but even if he were, we're still holding on to her position that baptism is in Jesus' name. Yes, so, why are those testimonies and acts not a denial of the trinity? Well, let's look at the first reason. Steve just brought it up. We talked about it a little bit last week. But this idea of prescription versus description. And again, Bob is a retired pharmacist. He gives a lot of prescriptions. And <laughs> I mean, those are, were those, uh, were they, did you give people suggestions? <laughs> those are prescriptions. I mean, that's maybe not the best uh, analogy, but this is a prescribed medicine. You should take this, okay? Take this medicine. And versus description, which would emphasize what? Something that happened, yeah, right. So uh, we have a quote here in the in the Acts, in the Book of Acts. It is repeatedly said that the apostles baptized their converts in the name of Christ. That's true, isn't it? That's a true statement. It's not infer. It's not to be inferred from this fact that they departed from the form prescribed in Matthew 28 and administered the ordinance and the use of the words. I baptize thee in the name of Christ, or I baptize thee unto Christ. It is in the highest degree improbable that the apostles would have departed from the form so solemnly prescribed by their divine master. And it is moreover improbable that any such departure took place from the fact that the form prescribed in Matthew has been used in all ages and parts of the church. And there's a comment from, from Charles Hodge on the issue. So he's making the point that we go with the prescribed baptismal formula, the one that Jesus actually told us to do, okay? Yes. Yeah. You know what I mean? Because you're saying, uh, the Bible makes the, the proclamation that, look, Matthew 
Yeah. Yeah. No. Okay. So actually, that's the direction we're going. But let's let's think about it real quick. Well, what would y'all say at this point? You say, okay, we we all we all see that in Matthew 28, it's an imperative from from the master to his disciples. He says, as you go make more disciples, this is what I want you to do. And then the same disciples go out and say, be baptized in the name of Jesus. Okay. So we at least as we're talking about this, that's what the debate is over. So how can, what should we tell people? What should be our main reasons? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that's something I did not put in my notes, but that's something we'll at least mark down. There's no apparent, no apparent. Uh, we'll call it, and can, oh, we call it no apparent, no apparent uh, rebuke that what they were doing was not in line with what the master told them. Okay. So even though it is its description. There's no, no, there's no any point in the New Testament saying, hey, what they actually did was wrong, and we need to reverse that. Okay? So that'd be one definite, that's a good point. Yeah, Bob raised his hand first, sorry. <laughs> That's a beautiful point to make right there. Just what you said, that's a great point because you're talking about the biblical context. Yeah. 
And now, are you calling them a cult on purpose or on accident? Okay, I'm not trying to catch you. That's a trick question either. Okay, are they even? Could you call one as Pentecostalism evangelical? No. Right. So, but because of the environment, I was doing what I was taught. Right. At some point, obviously, we left. So, whether it's a cult or not, I would not say that everybody's in that. You know, may have, I may may or may not be saved because I know I was there. Not right. I was saved. Right. But I didn't stay there, obviously, because I began to learn more of the scripture. I started realizing that it was the things that just wasn't adding up. Right. You know, we were there for a long time, too, you know, and but we eventually left. Mm-hmm. And so, yes, I disagree with their teaching overall because I just don't think it's biblical. Right. You know, I, I don't, you know. So it's very well, I mean, <laughs> I guess the call, I, I Yeah. Um. Yeah, we we could we we would we'd all agree. I know Bob would too agree that uh, there could be believers. Yeah, there are I, believers I, I in it. Yeah, believe that it is. Yeah, which doesn't mean it's not a cult. Right. Because again, Ron, I was there because that's we got saved and, and the guy pastor. We didn't know the difference between one is Pentecostal or anything else. All I know is that I received Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Right. That's what I do know. Right. But after like I said, after a period of time, it just things just kind of wasn't just adding up. And, you know, we read the scripture. Mm-hmm. So that's when we made a break. We just thought that it was better, you know. Yeah. 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 So what? Yeah. What's at stake is the Trinity. Yeah. So that's why whenever you're, if you're talking about this baptism, baptism issue with the one that's Pentecostal, that's what's that's actually at stake. Because right. they're they are trying to deny the Trinity. And see, at the time, I didn't know that though. Yeah. I didn't understand that. Mm-hmm. See. Right. That's why I Right. As as Mike preached this morning, you know, in reference to the uh, what he taught this morning, you know, you got this camp here, you got the camp right there. Mm-hmm. I think that happens sometimes. Yeah. But yes, I agree, it is because they are denying the Trinity. Mm-hmm. That's wrong. Right. Yeah. So it's, it goes back to several things, you know, like see, what about Roman Catholicism? Are they? Should we call them our brothers and sisters? Well, no. <laughs> I mean, are they our neighbors? Yes. And should we extend love to them as neighbor? Yes. But can't we call them brothers and sisters? No. Are there possible, is it possible that we have a brother or sister in Roman, in Roman Catholicism? Yeah. And, you know, if that person is, the Lord, the Lord will bring them out. But same issue here, different, different theological issues, um, but same, same principle at stake. Because this is what is at stake, is the Trinity, whenever you're talking about this issue. And that's why it's such a big deal. Um, that's why, okay, so say you have a Trinitarian who, who baptizes a person in the name of Jesus, and so I believe in the Trinity, you'd have a different argument with that person, but this is, the Trinity's at stake in this one. And so Luke, the point we're making right now, this is such a big deal, because behind them is not just 
a little you know, squabble about your baptismal formula. This is really an argument about the Trinity. That's what's really at stake. So that's why I want to look even deeper than, the, than, than just the formula. I forgive you. Go ahead. <laughs> Right. It's everything. So I mean, maybe he's saying being baptized, that is the gospel. God the Father, God the, 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 the Son, and God mm -hmm. the, it's all their work culminated in the person of Jesus Christ. So it kind of would include baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I, I don't know. That's where yeah. I'm well, the point is, y'all could teach this class because <laughs> you just, <laughs> I mean, everything y'all said just now was where we were going in the notes. Yeah. So I mean, not saying you're right because you agree with one of my notes. I put down my notes, but the point is, it's you know, as we all look at the scriptures, um, and about the, you know, on certain issues, we all look at the scriptures, and you want to see what God says about it. Christians come away, should come away. Yeah, I got it. And then you come talk to the next Christian, say, "What do you see about the Trinity and this, this, and that?" And be like, yeah, I see the same thing. So, in other words, stuff, the scripture is clear on these things. So, just to just to tie it in together here. Um, uh, look back at your notes there. Uh, this, this idea of baptizing in the name of Christ. Uh, we said this last week. I think it appears to be shorthand. could be just a shorthand way of saying it. Because the, the point was not the actual formula in the, in the Acts descriptions. Okay, That's not the point. Jesus made the point already in the actual prescription. And then the point was that they were carrying out discipleship baptism, preaching, all these things. Um, so I do believe it's just shorthand. So I wouldn't try to push it really far as, as to, okay, well, why, you know, why is it this way and that way? I say it's just a shorthand thing. But something, something Bob said we're going to look at now. Uh, the meteor, okay, so we're looking at reasons, okay, prescription versus description. Second one here is the mediatorial work of Christ and the believer's identity with Christ. Because this is a huge point. The baptisms recorded in Acts emphasize public identification with and public commitment to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ of Nazareth, the one the Jews just spent a few years outright rejecting and killing. And now Peter is preaching to these Jews saying, hey, the Jesus you just killed, remember him? 
you are supposed to publicly identify with him now and be baptized in his name. Public commitment that reflects a heart commitment. So you see how radical that identification would have been in that context and how that would have led Peter to say, be baptized in the name of Jesus of Nazareth. So when Bob brought that up, it's a beautiful point of looking at the actual context. So it's identification with commitment to Jesus Christ, the only mediator between God and man. Without the work of Christ, we would neither have access to the Father nor the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And Luke brought this up a minute ago from Acts 4. There's salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that's been given among men by which we must be saved. There is no other name. Right. You know, so I right. think that's probably where the difference lies. You know, I think they, because they go back and say that, oh, I forgot how we used it, uh, that um, it, was, it was Jesus only, meaning that, I think they meant that um, somehow, uh, I forgot how it used to go, somehow or another it was, instead of being God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, the Trinity, it was that Jesus was represented all those. Mm-hmm. In other words, yeah, that's what it was. Right, right. Yeah, I've heard similar things. Oh, Lord, Jesus was God at this point, then he was the Son at this point, and then he was the Holy Spirit at this point, something like that. Right. You know, so that's why I say I think that their baptizing Jesus' name was different from what Acts the Acts talked about. Right. I, I believe so. Yeah, that's perfect. What you just said, from coming from the context of one is Pentecostalism, what Bob said, coming from the context of Scripture, not that you lived 2,000 years ago, but... <laughs> But that's the key difference, is this public commitment to it. And whereas one is Pentecostalism, is trying to deny the Trinity and trying to promote this idea of modalism. So as I make a yeah. public commitment to Christ today in the midst of a wicked generation, doing that because, you know, my commitment, my love for Christ, obviously my love for the Trinity, mm-hmm. you know. But if I was one to Pentecostalism, I'd be saying, no, no, dude, it's, it's, it's in Jesus' name only and, and, and so forth and so on. It overrides what was said in Matthew that would be a totally different argument. Yeah. You know, yeah. Then I would be denying the Trinity exists. Right. Exists then and now. Yeah. yeah. So, what do we do with this? Uh, well, we can go straight to these passages, the ones we just listed at the beginning, that do have descriptions of the baptisms in Jesus' name. And who do we see in all those passages? The Trinity. So, let's look. We're not going to look at every single one, but you can see your notes there. Um, in Fesco, J.B. Fesco, he said, while the triune formula is not explicitly stated, it is materially present in that God the Father sends the Son who pours out the Spirit. And just, just look at your little list there. Um, these are all uh, references surrounding the context where we mentions baptism in Jesus' name. And other members of the Trinity are affirmed in those contexts. So just look at these quick phrases. Um, Acts 2.38 it refers to the gift of the Holy Spirit. Right. And then in Acts 8 where it also mentions a similar baptism. It talks about the kingdom of God. And then in Acts 8 as well it talks about the word of God. 
which in the Jewish context would have, they would have thought about the Father. Um, and that they might receive the Holy Spirit in that same context in Acts 8. And then Acts 10, another, another instance of the baptism um, is talking about receiving the Holy Spirit. And then Acts 19, uh, the context comes up again. The Holy Spirit came on them, and then also mentions the kingdom of God. So you have the, and all those baptism contexts, you have the whole, uh, all three persons of the Trinity mentioned. So in this sense, we've spent too much time on this topic because it's, it's very clear. The difficulty is they continue to deny it. So... Uh-huh. And I would see what the scripture was saying in Acts, but then I would hear the pastor and various different ones teaching. So I'll be honest with you, I was like confused I could be. Sure. You know, but but I was I know in my heart, I said, God, I, I tell all the you know, all I desire in my heart is the truth of the gospel. Mm-hmm. You know, and so we just continue to see the search and you know, and uh, I believe that it happened to a lot, a lot of people that get saved and you even with somebody in a Catholic church who really gave their heart to Christ. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, so. <laughs> right. Yeah, so I think I think this is all clear. Um, it just it's not the easiest topic in the world, and if you grew up with it, yeah. you're going to hold on to it until the Holy Spirit opens your eyes. Right. Not not a, a quote from uh, the preacher. That's what Charles Hodge was. That's the point Charles Hodge was making too. Yeah, where there's not there's no record of saying I baptized thee. And, yeah. 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 Amen. Okay, so this leads us naturally to the heresy of modalism. And this is what we'll end on a bang here. <laughs> um, hopefully we'll end on this note. But, <laughs> um, but Bruce Ware, he had a really good comment on it, uh, explaining it. Um, I'll talk about it. Uh, he has a good point where or the position theologically, but contemporary, contemporary um, manifestations of it, no pun, or pun intended, um, would be a person everyone always brings up. First letter starts with a T, second is a, a D, Jakes is the, the third, T.D. Jakes. Now, is he a modalist? Yes and no at this point. <laughs> um, he is, he's striven to be very popular, right? <laughs> so if, if, if popularity is your goal, which I have no doubt it is his goal because I worked at a Christian bookstore and I, I, all I have to do is look at all his books on the shelf. Um, with his huge, you know, picture on the cover, every <laughs> cover, um, he did this. Uh, it's called the Elephant Room. I haven't watched any of them, but I read some excerpts this week. Um, James McDonald, who is an evangelical preacher in Chicago, in, in Illinois, I think, um, he does these Elephant Room talks a couple times, where he brought in controversial figures and asked them tough theological questions and things like that. And the whole ended, the whole thing ended up being controversial, and everyone got mad at James McDonald and. I, like I said, I never really watched them, so I don't know what ended up happening. Um, I usually don't have time for things like that. <laughs> but uh, I read some quotes from it. 
And Mark Driscoll and James McDonald were interrogating him on it. And he said, are you, yeah, they said, do you affirm the Trinity? And he says, he said, yes. And, <laughs> and then he said, some people from one, my, my oneness Pentecostal background would now call me a heretic. That's what he said. But at the end of it all, he said, I don't like the word persons. I still like the word manifestations. <laughs> so when you go full circle, it's like, okay, what did you even just say? Because <laughs> um, he's still not affirming Orthodox Christianity and the, and the biblical teaching on, on the Trinity. He still wouldn't ultimately affirm it. He did affirm it, and then he didn't affirm it. And you really can't get anywhere in those kind of things. So I, I go on saying I don't really know what he is. I'd say he's just trying to be popular. That's what really matters to him, I think. Yeah. Yeah, I think probably the dough is what matters. Yeah. Yeah. Good for him. <laughs> yeah, so if, if you were someone like me, after you read that little excerpt of what he said, if you were, well, if you were a one as Pentecostal, you say, well, I think I could have him come preach at my church. But if you're a Southern Baptist, you could say, maybe I could have him preach at my church. If you didn't really listen to what he said, I think he made everyone happy is what he said, or what ended up happening. Yeah. So anyway, modalism. Uh, Bruce Ware had, I think he had a really good summary of it. That's why I put it in your notes for you. He said, it's an early Christian, or an early Christian by the name of Sibelius proposed that there is only one God who is the Father, but that the Father decided to manifest himself at one point in human history in the mode of the Son, coming into the world as Jesus Christ of Nazareth. So the one God and Father of all was now manifested as the Son and not the Father. So you have this, this first succession. Uh, whereas before the Incarnation, he had always subsisted in the mode of being the Father. Then after the resurrection and ascension of Christ, the one God came in the mode of the Holy Spirit. Yeah, the next succession here. So that during this time, when the Holy Spirit is present and at work, God subsists as the Holy Spirit and not as the Father or as a son. God is successively, not successfully, but successively, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. <clears throat> and he's not simultaneously Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Yeah, I, I, <clears throat> yeah, that question popped into my head this very week. I didn't explore that question. Should have, but um, I don't know. I think the whole point with, with teachings outside the Bible, uh, positions held outside the Scriptures, they're not going to make ultimate sense. Because they're not from the mind of God. It's nothing more than 
man-made yeah. mountain, if you will. Mm -hmm. And what happened when we get that? Why we didn't feel a witness? I mean, because somebody didn't like the way the scripture says something. Mm -hmm. Oh, I know what I'll do. Oh, I didn't know that. Okay. No, 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 no. <laughs> yeah, note on Bruce Ware. Bruce Ware is actually a great uh, Christian man. Um, he's not very tall, <laughs> but uh, but he's a great guy. He teaches at South, uh, Southern Theological Seminary. Um, but he's very he's very clear. Writer, very uh, level-headed theologian. So yeah, I, I, everything I've used, read from him has been really high quality. So I definitely Bruce Bruce Ware. <clears throat> yeah, so I mean, easy refutation of modalism. I mean, we could spend more time on it. But again, we're now we're we're in the context of talking about the deity of the Holy Spirit. Um, so two references that immediately come to all of our minds probably is okay, Jesus' baptism. Weren't all three members of the Trinity present? Right. So that's that's an easy one. So in other words, how can modalism be viable at all at that point? You'd have to say, well, okay, so okay, well, we'll make a concession. Three modes were present at one time, but beyond that, it's successive. <laughs> it wouldn't make any sense. Um, and another one is the Jesus prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, where he's praying to the Father. He's not praying to someone else or to himself but he's praying to the God the Father so this those in my mind that make, that closes the case and we don't even talk about it <laughs> anymore um, so yeah so that, that that's the end of the discussion on the deity of the Holy Spirit or at least the end of our notes on the, on the deity of the Holy Spirit um, so one day I'll rearrange it so that uh, it's a little bit more Easy to follow the notes. I should have added some of those things before. I just didn't think about it. But <clears throat> what time is it? Let's see. Yeah, so we can look at. Now, last week we uh, we said that we finished this last week, and then we moved on to this, the personality. But then we realized, well, we need to talk about this more. So we did that. Now we're going back to here, <laughs> back to personality. <clears throat> and uh, who was here last week? Okay. Um, we basically, <clears throat> what distinguishes, what, what is a person? Just a really re quick recap from last week. Does a, well, to ask us, what does a person mean? You have flesh and, and blood. Yeah, self-awareness. I had the three Ds. They didn't answer the whole question, but they were aware to, a way to, to mentally you know, lock it in so you could think about it further. Yeah. Right. <laughs> um, they're all they're all synonyms, but yeah, desire, decide, and do. Desire, decide, and do. So desire is the idea of will, or could you know could be emotions, and decide is you know determination, making making decisions, and do, which means you can accomplish things. Okay. So this is the idea that. An animal isn't like that, is he? Your house, we, we said we, last week we had suspicions about our house cats. Sometimes they do things that we can't explain. <laughs> but no, <laughs> that's why. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> 
Who has a house cat Adrian? <laughs> See? But Steve, he's not arguing with me, though. <laughs> uh. <clears throat> What's that? Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, that, that would distinguish a person from an animal, and it would distinguish a person from a mere force, right? So we're talking about the personality of the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> okay, um, so just in our last couple minutes, literally two minutes, we'll get... Well, realistically, it be more than two minutes, but really quickly here. Um, now, we're working through Erickson's outline. His first point on the personality of the Holy Spirit, or proving that he is a person, um, is he saying in saying that there's masculine pronouns used for the Holy Spirit. Has anyone ever heard that before? Like, it says, he. Okay. Now, I think Bob's read an article about this. <laughs> um, does it, does the Bible use he him pronouns for the Holy Spirit? Okay, so let's. And this is what we'll close with. Now, where? John, John fourteen and, and John sixteen is what you're thinking, probably. <clears throat> yeah. Yes, yes, uh, David's read the paper before, too. Um, and, yeah, I, I, will, uh, I will ask the Father, and this is the verse we're memorizing, um, and he will give you another helper, who is the Holy Spirit, right? That he may be, that who may be with you? That it may be with you? That he may be with you forever. Okay, so there is a masculine pronoun, not a neuter pronoun or a feminine pronoun. And then there's other... There's plenty of other references in those two chapters to he being uh, in reference to the Holy Spirit. Now, does that prove the personality of the Holy Spirit? That's the question. Okay. I said I have one yes and one no. Okay. All right. Now, uh, why would you say no, Bob? Yeah, okay. Yeah, so you wouldn't want to bank on this by itself or put a, too much stock in it. Right, and I would, I would agree with you on that um, for, one re- for two reasons. One is I would want to, that would be hard to prove just based on that one thing. And secondly, the he pronouns are masculine for a reason here. Um, this is a technical issue, okay? So let's look at this just for a second. Um, but in, in grammar, you have, I'm, gonna, I'm going back into your, your history right now, okay? Back, in, back into your elementary school history. There's things we all learned and we all forgot. You have nouns, and then you have, what in the world? <laughs> and you have antecedents. What is an antecedent? Um, and then you can have pronouns too. What is a pronoun? It's a professional noun, right? It gets paid to be a noun. <laughs> no, not quite. But a noun would be 
Bob, right? Right? And then a pronoun could be he. This describes this, but in a much shorter way, right? Without saying, Bob went to the store because Bob wanted to get some food because Bob wanted to feed his family. That's what Bob does. That just, <laughs> just keep saying Bob, Bob, Bob. That's where pronouns come in and help you to, to uh, be less cumbersome in your language. Now, whenever you have a pronoun, it will always have an antecedent. And that's the question. Now, in this case, the antecedent of he is Bob, right? Now, what's the antecedent of the he in John 14? Just looking at this one reference here. This, this, there's several references you could look at. Um, what's the antecedent of he in John 14, 16? I'm going to say no. <laughs> to Luke. Helper, yes. Helper. Right. So this is, this is the fallacy. I'm calling it the fallacy of the masculine pronoun argument. I'm calling that argument by itself a fallacy. Because they'll say the writers of Scripture wanted to prove so badly that the Holy Spirit was a person that they broke the rules of grammar. And they used a masculine pronoun for the Holy Spirit even though the word spirit is neuter. Does that make sense? Because it wouldn't make sense for me to say he if Bob wasn't it. I would use the word it, right? So, but they say, people who make this argument say, the Holy Spirit is a person, the, Holy, the, the, the writer of Scripture the writer of scripture wanted to prove that so badly that they broke the grammar rules and used a he when it should be an it. That's, that's the argument that they make. But we say it's a fallacy because that didn't happen. <laughs> because he refers to helper, which is in Greek, parakletos, a masculine, neuter, or feminine word. Parakletos. It's masculine. So, as always, that rule that keeps on going, that uh, masculine pronoun in Greek will have a masculine antecedent. That rule always stays. The, rule, the writer of Scripture always uphold that grammatical rule. Because they have good grammar, right? <laughs> Yeah, I would say, no, not just this one verse. I'd say all the references um, in this passage of he or him are, are pointing back to the helper. So they're, they're all grammatically correct. So the point that, that, at least that we're, we're talking about, the point we're trying to establish is we're not going to say that because you have he, it, it definitely means that he's a person. Because all, all, their, all the scripture is doing is just following normal grammatical rule because parakletos is a is a function, right? It's it's not that that in itself um, is not a uh, like a, a proper name or something like that, right? So, right. So all we're trying to establish right here is don't use this argument. 
say, well, they broke the rules of grammar in order to prove that the Holy Spirit's a person, because that didn't happen. That's the only point we're making. Um, does that make sense? Right. If you will. You know, it's a person. He's a person. Yeah. You know, with personality. Right. Yeah, so again, we're some people would say some of you would put it this way, you say we're splitting hairs. That's how it's gonna come across. And in a sense that's what we are doing, but at the same time it's important because we don't want to sound foolish by saying something that's not true. Because there's many, many Bible teachers who would say they broke the rules of grammar right. to prove that he's a person. So all we're trying to establish, the only point we're trying to establish is don't use, don't argue from the grammar. Right, from the grammar itself. Argue from the whole context. Right, the overall. Yeah, so that's where, I, that's where I go back to what Luke said and say, yes, in the context of John 14 through 16, it's abundantly clear that he is a person. We're just not going to use the fallacy of the grammatical argument in this, in this case, as so many people do. I've done it before, too. And then, actually, I read this article, um, the Nacelli and Gons article, and I thought, oops. <laughs> um, and it's because they, they, I mean, they, it's irrefutable. Looking at it grammatically with, with the, way they, the way they outline it, it's, it's irrefutable what, what John is actually recording here. So, again, we're going to argue on the appropriate grounds from the context and from the function of the Holy Spirit and how he's described. Not just saying that, oh, look, see, they broke the rules of grammar to prove it because they didn't do that. So. Um, Okay, we'll go ahead and close there, uh, but we'll pick up next week. And I had that as the first one, but look down the list. You see many, 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 many reasons why we do teach that he is a person. Okay? Holy Spirit is a person and not a mere force. So we were just establishing that up front so we can argue on the right grounds. Okay? That's all we were trying to point out. Okay? All right, any other questions? All right, let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for uh, our time together. And Holy Spirit, we do thank you for what you are at work in the world doing.